Nobody is good. Nobody. Welcome to Sports with Chris Rawl. I am Chris Rawl, and I will be talking about sports. On today's show, we have reached the portion of the season where every football team looks flawed, and fans and media are freaking the hell out. Who are the teams that shall rise? Anywhere on planet Earth, I firmly believe this. There is not one person who I would consider to be good in the idealized version of the word. I hear it thrown around all the time. Oh, that's a great person. That's, and I go, no, I don't think that's true. Now, I include myself in this statement when I say nobody is good. I am a human. And I believe that humans, they're not that good. Uh, Kind of a very flawed individual here speaking on the flawed nature of humanity. Just a perfect subject for a podcast, right? You're all probably wondering why I'm bringing this up because Chris is down in the dumps on a Monday morning and he wants to say that nobody's good. But I think there is a lot of power and a lot of room to grow when you understand that nobody is good. Because if you understand that, then you follow a line of logic. You say, nobody is good. And in that world, you understand that perfect does not exist. That perfection is not a realistic expectation for literally anyone or anything in life. There's a lot of strength in understanding that. Because you become more receptive and understanding of people's flaws, right? How you perceive flaws. Kind of the age-old question of, are you a glass half-full or a glass half-empty person? Um, The way that I conduct myself within relationships in my life is I come to the table with the understanding that I'm flawed and the person across from me is flawed. And what I do is I'm very upfront and honest about what I bring to the table, both positively and negatively. And I say, these are things about me that I'm not trying to hide, that I'm not ashamed of, because this is just a part of life, that you're not going to be perfect in any way, shape, or form. And so I would like you to understand who I am, uh, what the makeup of me as a human being actually is. That's part of the process that I abide by when I build human relationships. Come to the table and I say, this is who I am. Here are the things that you probably might not like, but know that they're there. Here are the things that I think you might like. Uh, The fact that if you're in a room with me, you're going to feel joy and happiness because those are things that I feel towards life. And those are things that I feel towards people that I am involved with, whether intimately or friend level or family level. That is what I bring to the table. Um, It's kind of the process of how do you balance the really incredible things someone can bring to the table against the pain or the hurt or the dishonesty that 
everybody, including myself, is capable of bringing to the table. How do you balance that, right? Do flaws outweigh virtues? This continual dance. And sometimes they do. Um, I've been within a relationship recently where the flaws were too much. And I said, I, I can't exist with this on the table because it serves a negative purpose in my life. And I'm very, very adamant that I don't want things in my life that are negative. I'm a positive person who likes joy and likes happiness. And if you are detracting from that, then there's not a place for you within my circle. I've been reading a lot of poetry lately from Liesl Mueller. I referenced her last week on this podcast. I'm going to reference a line from her again. Watch for occasional bits and bubbles of light. A great line. And it ties into what I believe to be the essence of life. Just how do you find meaning and happiness within the way that you carry yourself and the way that you conduct your business every single day? For me, it's seeking out the occasional bits and bubbles of light. It's the virtue that is inside of people or inside of inanimate objects. It's as simple as watching the sunrise this morning and going, mm, that's something that I wanted to be a part of. It's as simple as going and playing golf today with my friends and laughing and maybe shooting a good score and maybe not, but understanding, mm, this is one of those bits. This is one of those bubbles of light. It's as simple as me watching Rams Titans by myself last night and just sitting there going, yeah, this is something that I enjoy. This is something that I find meaning from for reasons sometimes unknown, but it's there. This is something that I find joy from. This is something that I find happiness from. Uh, And if you can find enough of those, then it will always outweigh the flaws, whether that's in life or in a relationship or in the world of sports. Because I tend to apply this same philosophy into the world of sports. Um, This idea that, yeah, nobody is good. But there's a lot of positive things that everybody can bring to the table. So what are those? And, And when you find them, do they outweigh the flaws? How do you find these occasional bits and bubbles of light, whether within yourself or within others? In the world of sports... The idealized version of a contender never exists in real time. I'm very adamant about that. It only exists after the fact. I've talked about that many times. I think that people abide by that same philosophy in their personal lives. See people in relationships and they'll be unhappy and they'll talk about all the flaws that their partners bring to the table and then they'll break apart and they'll sit there going, oh man, they were so great and this... Think of all the great things they brought to the table and, oh, I miss them so much. And I go, well, why didn't you ever express that in real time? Why didn't, why didn't you ever search that out in real time? Um, you can always find bits and bubbles of light in anything that you do. Person, place, activity. Um, you can always find those things. So in the world of sports, if every team is flawed, well then a flawed team must win a championship. You see that reflected in the last two NBA champions who have really, really, really followed what I'm describing to a T. The Milwaukee Bucks last year, everybody agreed before they won the championship that this team cannot win a championship 
because they have a terrible crunch time offense and they're a total clog toilet. The most important part of the game in the most important games of the season. How do you manufacture buckets in this half court? And how can you really build a team around a star like Giannis who has very noticeable flaws? He can't shoot free throws, which you need in the playoffs, especially in crunch time. And he can't manufacture consistent buckets from the perimeter, which we all agree you need in present day NBA. And then the Milwaukee Bucks won the NBA championship. And we went, oh, this is not only a contender, this is an NBA champion. And we retroactively fit the Milwaukee Bucks into what we believe NBA champions are. We said, well, yeah, well, actually, they're really good at defense. And man, Giannis took another leap and might not be great at shooting free throws or jumpers, but holy hell, did you see what he was doing in the finals against the Suns? We saw in the year prior with the Los Angeles Lakers. Everybody agreed, man, it's going to be kind of a struggle for them because this team cannot shoot three-pointers well. They're in the bottom half of the league, and we know one thing about today's NBA, you have to shoot the three-ball well. And man, they're cramped with their spacing. When they get that center out there, Dwight Howard, and how are they going to manufacture enough buckets in the half court, in crunch time, at the end of games, most important possessions in the most important games. This is a team that is not built for that half court offensive grind that you need at the end of playoff games. And then they pounded on everybody and they beat the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. And we said... Oh, this is an NBA champion because we understood what they could do. One of the best defenses that we've seen in the last while. And the star power of LeBron and Anthony Davis was so bright in the half court. They didn't need it to be the best offense in the league. They needed to get enough buckets and they did. And they combined that with a suffocating swarming defense. And that's how they won an NBA championship. Both of these teams, very noticeable flaws. We can talk about them. We talked about them at the time a bunch. I can still talk about them in retrospect because it helps to push home the point that I really want to stress within this show. Um, the glass half empty, that doesn't necessarily matter. If what you can do can overcome it. For those two teams, what they could do overcame their flaws. Uh, my favorite hockey team is the Colorado Avalanche. And last year, they're going through a rough spell. Everybody thinks they're a Stanley Cup contender and got a couple games in a row that they're not doing too hot. And fan base is freaking out. The media coverage is freaking out. And everybody's going, this is, I mean, this is not how contenders play. I can't believe that you think that the Avalanche could win a Stanley Cup because they're not goaltending well right now and they're not scoring goals. And where's their depth scoring? And their defense isn't transitioning pucks out of their own end well. And I'm listening to it and I go, yeah, they aren't playing well right now, but this is part of the process. Every single team in every single sport will go through a spell like this, without a shadow of a doubt. Baseball, there's 162 games. Hockey and basketball, there's 82 games. Even in football, you're going to go through a spell. NFL, 16 games. College football, 12, 13, 14, depending on the length of your season. The main point is, even in games or even in sports with a smaller amount of games, this is part of the process. You will have spells where your flaws are shown. And then this is part of the process of growth. And you say, well, what do we do well? And can we do those things well enough to overcome the flaws that we have? It is a question for humanity. It is a question for teams as they look to win a championship 
in whatever sport. So I bring all this up because we are at the portion of the football season where there's been enough games played to understand the flawed nature of every team. And if you want, which I think a lot of people like to do, you could rule out every team in college football, except maybe one, but we'll talk about that. And you could rule out every team in the NFL as a non-contender based upon the flaws that we've seen. You can say this team doesn't play defense well enough and this team doesn't defend the pass well enough and this coaching staff is bad and this offense can't run the ball or pass the ball or this special teams unit. You could find stuff about every single team. That's part of what was going through my mind as I watched football on Saturday on Sunday. It was a great, 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 great reminder of this particular point. You will see spells from every single team that make you reassess in your mind whether or not this team is actually contender. College football on Saturday, it was a giant neon sign hanging from the ceiling pointing saying, look at this immense collection of flawed teams and Georgia. Now, Georgia is held outside this discussion, but I want to make an important note about this particular team. They are the one team who has been impressive from start to finish. Their defense is the one thing in college football that I trust. They look like they are much better than everybody else across the nation. That's based on everything we've seen. However, there's always hesitation in my mind. Because I remember that sports are really hard to predict. And I remember a lot of examples throughout the history of college football where I thought one thing and I was so convinced of it. And then a result arose up out of the deep like the Loch Ness Monster. And I thought, wow, I cannot believe that happened. I was listening to a recap show on Sunday morning. I'm driving into the office. And the two people who were talking, they bring up 2006 because they were talking about this particular subject. And just, we think Georgia's really good, but I don't know. We haven't really seen them be tested, tested, and I want to watch that. And maybe there is not a team that exists in this season of college football that can actually test them. Maybe. But 2006 is a good reminder. Because that year, Ohio State, start to finish, everybody agrees they're the best team. Troy Smith wins the Heisman Trophy. They're dunking on everybody. Their final regular season game, they play Michigan. It's number one, Ohio State, number two, Michigan. Ohio State wins a three-point thriller. Everybody agrees it was the national title game. And Ohio State advances to the Fiesta Bowl, and it's just a matter of coronation at that point. Florida, they're supposed to be the sacrificial lamb. They're there waiting. Florida, they've stumbled and bumbled around. They got a two-quarterback system. They're playing Chris Leak and freshman Tim Tebow. They haven't really looked that particularly good that season, but they were just there. And I'm at this game. I go to this game. Uh, and I'm down there in Glendale, Arizona. This is 15 years ago. And I remember walking into the stadium and I'm fired up because it's just really fun to be a part of an atmosphere where everybody understands the magnitude of the game. And it means something to each individual there in the crowd and on the field. It's really cool to be a part of that emotional energy that arises when 60,000 people are a part of that. Okay, and it's new Arizona Cardinals Stadium at the time, state of the art, all the bells and whistles. It's awesome. So I settle down and I go, I hope this game's competitive because it seems like Ohio State's going to bash on Florida because that's just what we've seen all season long. And Ted Ginn, 
who's playing wide out and returning kicks for Ohio State at the time. He goes on to have an NFL career. I still remember this vividly. Uh, they kick off to Ted Ginn. He's right in front of me, uh, and he catches it, and he's makes a move, and he's suddenly streaking down the sidelines, opening kickoff. And the crowd's probably 75% Ohio State, 25% Florida, and it's just bedlam. And I don't particularly have a dog in the fight. I just wanted to be a part of it. And so I'm kind of feeling that emotional rush of just, man, that's a moment, you know. And I'm thinking at the time, as this 75% Ohio State crowd is just going ballistic and they're ready for the coronation. And I'm going, this is going to be the moment, you know, Ohio State, they're going to swamp them because they're the best team in the nation, obviously. And this will be the thing that I remember. Ohio State, Ted Ginn right in front of me, running on down the sideline as the entire Ohio State sideline and crowd just loses their collective minds. And I go, this is going to be a blowout. And it was in the opposite direction because Florida weathers the opening storm of that kicker turn and they dominate the game. Team that we thought was just whatever. They outscore Ohio State from that point forward 42 to 7. They win 42 to 14. A great, great, great example and reminder amidst many throughout the history of college football. It is really hard to predict and understand anything, especially in a sport where there's limited crossover between conferences and we think that we know this team is so good because they ran through this conference we think we know this team is bad because they stumbled and bumbled around and we all agreed that conference isn't good and we get to bowl season and there's crossover and we go oh maybe the aac is better than we thought or maybe the big 10 was worse than we thought or maybe that go on down the list it changes every season the main point is it's really hard to understand what is what especially in a sport with limited crossover. So that's Georgia. I bring that up just as a thing to think about. And I hope Georgia wins the national title because I have a future on them. But I'm also aware that until it is settled and Georgia is actually being crowned the national champion, there's always going to be a part of my mind that remembers stuff like 2006 Ohio State versus Florida. Now, this week, after a heated four-ish days of playoff rankings debate that I threw my own hat into the ring on Wednesday show. Saturday gave us a reminder. Top of the rankings, two through ten, pick your poison. It is a collection of very flawed teams. Just is. There's nobody who is standing out. And yet, somebody is going to have to emerge and fill the two through four spots because literally four teams have to make the playoff. The consensus going into Saturday, you would have polled media and fans alike, and I include myself in this mix. If you were to choose two teams who you think could challenge Georgia, they would be Alabama and Ohio State, despite the fact that Ohio State hasn't looked that impressive and Alabama's kind of waxed and waned like the moon. The two teams who they maybe pose the specific matchup problems that could give Georgia a game. Explosive offenses and get them into a a game that they're not comfortable playing. They want to play boa constrictor football and, you know, let's score 28 points and see if they can match us. And yet these two teams, they just continue to be uninspiring. They just are. The flaws are very noticeable in both of these teams. Alabama, they host LSU's 29-point favorites on Saturday. They cannot block. They give up five sacks. They rush for six yards. They have to have two different stands on their own side of the field in the last six minutes to win by six over LSU. 
And I finish the game and I go, if this team did not have the Alabama name and the track record attached to it, what would we say of them? We would say, this is a pretender. Ohio State, I am still waiting for them to impress me in any way, shape, or form. They squeak out a game against my team, Nebraska, that just boiled down to one kicker made his field goals and one did not. It's the story of Nebraska's season. But Nebraska goes 0 for 2 on field goals. Ohio State goes 4 for 4. <laughs> they end up winning by 9 points. Uh, it, it was closer than that. It's just not an impressive performance. Again, in a season filled with unimpressive performances and a loss at home to Oregon on their record. And I thought the same thing as I thought with Alabama. If this team did not have the Ohio State name and track record attached to it, what would we say of them? We would call them a pretender. This stuff is really hard to understand and predict. Again, I really want to hammer that point home as I'm talking about the flawed nature of these teams. I'll talk more about Nebraska later this week. But just here's another reminder that sports are hard to predict. And sometimes even when you have information at your disposal, they're almost impossible to understand. It's synonymous with how relationships in human life are conducted. Okay. Sometimes you think you understand what somebody is to you. And then you realize, no, that was a complete whiff. And maybe I don't understand this person's motivations for doing things. Here's the thing that will remind you of that when it comes to sports. Nebraska is 1-6 in in Big Ten play. And yet, Nebraska has outscored Big Ten opponents 190-176. to Think about that for just one second. Nebraska has a plus 14 scoring margin in Big Ten play. And outright, they have one win and six losses. I mean, try to make sense of that. Back to the playoff debate and just the flawed nature of teams. And some of these will manifest themselves in the worst possible way, a loss, and and they'll be eliminated. And some of these will be covered up. What are the occasional bits and bubbles of light? Remember, think about that when you watch these teams. Cincinnati, I mean, they're all aboard the struggle bus at this point. (laughs) They're being treated like a team that does not have a, a brand name that's undefeated and wants to be a part of the playoff, but they're maybe not impressive at, current, at the current moment in time, well, everybody calls them a pretender. That's what we view them as. Uh, when it comes to the margins of a game and how it's decided, man, their game against Tulsa was a great examination of that. Since he's up eight at the end of the game, a minute and change, Tulsa's going for the touchdown. They're down at the one-yard line, and they get stuffed right at the, right at the goal line. And I go, man, since he's going to survive, but I don't know. I don't know what to make of this team. But I also understand that nobody else has impressed me. So who's going to emerge into the two through four spot since he could. (laughs) And yet then Desmond Ritter comes in and they're just trying to run the clock out and he's trying to quarterback sneak it for a little space and he fumbles on the first snap and Tulsa has the ball back inside the five with a minute to go and they have four downs to try and score. (laughs) And they get stopped on first. They get stopped on second. And then Tulsa's running in for the touchdown and their quarterback slides early. Just like happened in the Green Bay-Washington football team game a few weeks ago with Taylor Heineke. Tulsa's quarterback has a touchdown if he wants it. And he tries to do an awkward slide into the end zone rather than just jumping in. And he goes down early. So now it's 
fourth and goal from the half-ish yard line. And it looks like their running back has an opportunity to score and he's there. And maybe he fumbles and live, I think it is. And then it's showing the replay. And I literally cannot tell whether he fumbles before he stretches the ball across the goal line or doesn't. I, I really, I truly cannot tell. I watched the replay a hundred times because it was very interesting to me. And it's ruled a fumble on the field. And obviously it's upheld on replay because nobody can tell. That's the margin of victory in this game. Just inches, a yard, a fumble here for reasons unknown. This is the kind of stuff that shapes seasons. Cincinnati, they're, they have flaws. There's no way around it. But you keep going down the list and you go, everybody does. Oregon, I mean, it's another uninspiring victory. This time, it's over the least imaginative offense I have ever seen in my entire life in present-day college football in Washington. There's a reason that John Donovan, their offensive coordinator, was fired over this weekend. I cannot watch the Washington Huskies play offense in the manner that they have been playing. Amidst all of these teams that understand how to throw, and how to spread a team out, and how to attack in a normal manner, Washington plays football like it's 1922. It's so bad. And even with that, Oregon's having to grind out this win. Don't forget about Oklahoma just because they didn't play. If I wanted to extend this podcast by 30 minutes, I could start listing flaws of that team. Michigan, they beat Indiana. It's not impressive. It wasn't unimpressive. It was just a Michigan slog, a slog of a win. It's the way that they kind of have perfected winning under John Harbaugh. Maybe break a big play here and there, but mostly just play defense and run for four yards at a time and we'll win 29 to 7. These are the contenders in college football. Do you need another reminder that nothing in life makes sense? And we always do. Let's just talk about the Purdue Boilermakers real fast. The ultimate giant slayer. There's another stat that I came across. This was from Chris Vanini at The Athletic. Purdue has 17 wins against AP top five opponents while unranked. Six more than anyone in college football history. Make sense of that. The Purdue Boilermakers, who are always unranked because they are not ever good at football, they somehow are able to get up for these games against top five opponents and beat them. Six times more than anybody in the history of college football. Why? How? How do you make sense of any of this? Michigan State, Wake Forest, two top 10 teams. They go down. Michigan State, obviously, to Purdue. Wake Forest to North Carolina. We understood their flaws going into this week. I talked about it some on Wednesday's show. Michigan State struggled to defend the pass. Wake Forest struggled to defend, period. Can the occasional bits and bubbles of light that you possess outweigh your flaws? That's the question. Michigan State, Wake Forest, the answer is no. A lot of people thought they were pretenders before Saturday, and their flaws manifested themselves in the form of a loss. Michigan State, they couldn't stop Purdue from throwing the ball all over the field. 500-plus yards passing, David Bell, 200-plus yards receiving. Wake Forest, they could not stop Sam Howell in North Carolina at any point. They gave up 58 points. They scored 55. That's a loss. You are now eliminated from the playoff race. If you are Wake Forest, you're Michigan State. You're actually still floating around. Because if you beat Ohio State and you went out, you're going to be in the playoff. Even with the flaws that we know about these teams. The remainder of the college football season, I am very interested in. For a variety of reasons. But for purposes of what I'm discussing, 
there's one that really stands out. Being able to determine whose flaws will crack and shatter and whose can be covered up. That's the question moving forward for all of these teams. What are the bubbles of light that you possess? Is it an explosive offense? Is it a credible defense? Is it just the ability to out-scheme opposing coaches? Is it, I mean, there's a million different things that could tie into whether or not you are a contender. And if you put yourself in that position and the margins go your way, like they did for Cincinnati on Saturday or Ohio State, I mean, you can't control Nebraska's kicker just being complete dog shit and missing all their field goals. Or Alabama. For each of these teams, that's the question moving forward. What are your bubbles of light and are they strong enough to overcome all else? The flaws that we already understand about your team. Alabama, you struggle to block. Ohio State, you struggle to defend. You struggle to score in the red zone consistently lately. You're just settling for field goals nonstop. Cincinnati, you're just across the board not dominating these teams that you need to dominate. Oregon, you don't trust your quarterback, Anthony Brown, to throw the ball, period. Oklahoma, you can't stop anybody at all. Michigan, can you manufacture any explosive plays against any good team? I could go down the list and continue with every team because I clearly understand the flaw of every single team that exists in college football right now because I've watched enough games. But these are all overcomable if you have enough things that you can bring to the table. It's the same in the NFL. Actually, even more so after Sunday. Uh, the only thing that I know about the NFL is that I don't know anything. I don't say that as a joke. I don't say that flippantly. I kind of had a, in a roundabout way, this discussion yesterday with some people. And I basically said those things as a gambling philosophy. I said, look, <laughs> I know a lot about the NFL, but none of it matters. The only thing that actually matters is that I don't know anything. And so if you understand that, then you never go on what happened the week prior because you understand this sport is impossible to predict. So from a gambling line perspective, you try to understand where do you think some value could be baked in because this team was bad last week and this team was good. There were a lot of examples of that from a gambling perspective, but for today's show, I'm just going to stick with what was happening on the field and this flaw versus virtue tug of war that occurs within each team that perceives itself as a contender. Kansas City Chiefs, they play my team, Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers is obviously not playing. It was just a shit show of epic proportions on Green Bay's offense part. As it turns out, Jordan Love, no, he's not ready to start. Very strange that Green Bay's management was acting like he would be ready to start going into this season if Aaron Rodgers was not playing. We have a definitive answer to that, and it is N-O. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Packers a ton because the Kansas City Chiefs are a great examination of everything that I'm talking about today. Number one. Everyone has flaws. Number two, do you have enough in your arsenal that can overcome that? And three, the only thing that I know about the NFL is that I don't know anything. If you came to me before this season and you said, Chris, what is one thing that you feel very confident is going to happen in this NFL season? Literally number one on my list, I would say, hmm, if Patrick Mahomes is playing and healthy, 
then the Chiefs are going to have an explosive and good offense. And yet, that has not been the case. Again, it's just, you can't even predict this stuff. There's something that is so rotten about this football team. And I can't fully put my finger on it. I know that the defense is atrocious. Maybe the worst in football. Again, makes it even more glaring when you're watching Jordan Love being unable to move the ball against a defense that I know to be hot garbage. But on the other side, for the Kansas City Chiefs is where I truly am shocked. And I start to lean deeper into their flaws when I'm trying to separate contenders from pretenders. Because I watch their offense every week and within the last seven days, I watch them play the Giants on Monday night and I watch them play Green Bay yesterday. Two teams that don't have particularly imposing defenses. And they cannot do any of the things that I thought they would be able to do. They refuse to take what the defense gives. They are not hitting any explosive plays downfield. They continue to turn the ball over in crucial situations. Patrick Mahomes himself is showing cracks in the armor in every single game. He looks jittery. He's missing throws. He's making multiple boneheaded plays every single game. Never in a million years would I think that after nine games of the 2021 season, I'd be sitting here saying, I have arrived at the point that I did yesterday where I am willing to write the Kansas City Chiefs off as a team that could win this year's Super Bowl. I might be wrong on that. And if I am, you can come back and make fun of me. But I've seen enough to say, I don't think that their virtues can overcome their flaws. I don't. Go down the list of NFL results yesterday. You want to understand that the only thing that anybody can know about the NFL is that we do not know anything at all. The Bills, they're the one team in the AFC that I would have said I trusted going into yesterday. I said they're well-rounded. They can play defense. They're really well-coached. Their offense hasn't been as good this year as last year, but I trust they'll find their footing. You know, they got a lot of talent. They go into Jacksonville as 14 or 14 and a half point favorites, depending where you get them. And they lose outright 9-6. to Their offense... It's not being talked about in the same manner as Kansas City's, but it's almost as shocking to me when you look at the scope of their season and understand they really have not had any explosive outputs at all in a manner that they did consistently last year. Just a struggle to score points for this team that has Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, and Cole Beasley, and a respectable offensive line, and Gabe Davis, and Devin Singletary, and Zach Moss. They're losing outright to the Jaguars yesterday. Sunday night, the Rams are hosting the Titans and Derrick Henry's out and the Rams are favored by a touchdown and they're the toast of the town and a lot of people think this could be the best team in football. And it's just supposed to be a Sunday night coronation where Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels are raving about how good Matt Stafford edition is and this team, man, look at the star power, Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald and Vaughn Miller's not playing, but they just acquired him. Imagine when he's getting single blocked on the edge oh man this team's going to be scary as hell <laughs> and it's just a runaway for the titans kevin byard has a pick six they completely stymie what the rams want to do on offense and i'm watching it going do i need to reassess what i think about these teams how do i make sense of any of this stuff i'm starting to understand the flaws of each of these teams in the rams case i go mm, i think your virtues can outweigh your flaws the Bills, I feel the same way, but I'm starting to get a little bit more worried. 
a Dallas Cowboys, a team going into Sunday, I go, man, this is this is the shock of the season for me on the positive side because I truly believe they're a Super Bowl contender. I believe they have the best offense in football and their defense has been leaps and bounds better than I thought it would be. And they're hosting the Broncos and they're favored by 10 and they're coming off of a week when Cooper Rush stepped in, was able to beat the Vikings and now they got Dak Prescott back and they're going to throw it all over the yard and what happens? The Broncos are up 30-0 at one point. Cowboys score a couple meaningless touchdowns at the end that make the final score look a little bit more respectable, but it was a blowout. That's what it was. Now I'm sitting there going, do I need to reassess the Cowboys or is this just a one-off game? I, again, I always gravitate towards forgiveness. I say this in life and I say this in sports. I go, no, I, I get we all make mistakes. And I extend a certain amount of leniency based upon that. I really do. That's why I'm more forgiving when it comes to perceived contenders. That's why I am forgiving within human relationships. People say, oh, I, I did this thing that it was wrong towards you. And I go, it's okay. You know, but here's what you have to understand moving forward. If I continue to see it, then there's not a place for you in my life. That's part of how I live in the day-to-day. You don't have forgiveness forever. That doesn't exist for me personally. Again, that's just how I think and how I act, and some people will think and act differently, and that's fine. That's great. But I also bring that same thought process to the table when I'm trying to separate who I think is good, who I think is bad, and ultimately, who I think is capable of winning the championship in this particular year. We're bringing it all full circle here from the start to the end when it comes to just the flawed nature of people, the flawed nature of teams, and how we can all rise above that. Remember, four teams in college football must make the playoff. Two teams in the NFL must make the Super Bowl. Okay? Remember that. Very simple fact. So teams that everyone agrees are immensely flawed right now, they will emerge. Again, this is the nature of life. This is the nature of sports. Watch for bits and bubbles of occasional light. The idealized version of a contender never exists in real time. Only after the fact. If every team is flawed, then a flawed team must win a championship.